Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. That's where we'll be. And um, I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome. And if you're online with us, we're glad you're here. Um, would love for you to say hi in the comments so that we can say hi back. Lee, thanks for leading us in communion this morning. It was um, very meaningful uh, to me this morning. So here's um, where we are. We are at the end of, uh, of the Ephesian letter. In beginning in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is going to give us some final instruction, and then he's going to uh, make a final appeal. He's going to ask for something uh, personal. He's going to ask um, that, the, that the believers in the church at Ephesus would pray for him, would intercede for him, that they, they would enter into um, uh, the struggle, the battle for the ministry that he has. But beginning in chapter 10, it's probably one of the passages that is familiar to you. If uh, you have been around the church, it may be that when you were a, a child, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, there were flannel graphs about the armor of God that you uh, learned and uh, songs that went with it. It's a popular theme of vacation Bible schools. Well, the reality is what Paul does is he's going to lift the veil for us. He's going to remind us really how thin the veil is between the things that we see and the things that we don't see. That um, there is more to this life than what we can observe with only our eyes. In fact, it is a theme that the Bible um, has consistently uh, told. It has consistently talked about. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament. You see in Genesis chapter 3, there is a veil there that you didn't know existed. You can see it throughout uh, the writings. You get to a book like Daniel, and in Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, it, it gives us this stark picture of, an, of a messenger, an angel messenger that's coming to Daniel to deliver Daniel an answer to a prayer that he prayed. And he describes to Daniel that for 20 days, 21 days, he was engaged in a spiritual battle, a spiritual warfare, and Michael, the archangel, came to his rescue and fought on his behalf, and then he shows up to Daniel. You find it in the New Testament, Jude speaks of the angels who did not stay in their own position of authority. They kept eternal, and they were kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second Peter mentions things similar as well. Throughout the history of the church, there have been men and women who have written about the spiritual battle that we're in. In the 13th century, it was Dante. In the 16th century, it was Faust. The 20th century brought a renewed interest into it. In 1942, C.S. Lewis published the Screwtape Letters. There's a senior demon named Screwtape writing to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior tempter. And it's a series of letters that are replied to. I'll 
I'll tell you, Lewis, in his, um, in his foreword, uh, talked about the toll that, that just writing the screw tape letters took on him. He said, the strain produced a sort of spiritual cramp. The work into which I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. Every trace of beauty and freshness and geniality had to be excluded. It almost smothered me before I was done. I, it would have smothered my readers if I had prolonged it. Then he says, I've resolved to never write another of those letters. When 1973, one of the most profitable horror movies was ever made, The Exorcist. In 1986, Frank Peretti published This Present Darkness. There's been lots of publications, lots of media portrayals in between all that. Peretti's describing a town. He's, he's wanting to um, open up your eyes as the reader to the things not seen. He speaks about it this way. The crime was up, especially among the youth. Simple, common trust in one's neighbor was diminishing. Never had there been a town so full of rumors, scandals, and malicious gossip. In the shadow of fear and suspicion, life was gradually losing its joy and simplicity, and no one seemed to know why. Then he begins to speak about things spiritual. It's been said, if what you see is all you see, then you do not see all there is to be seen. What Paul's going to do here, he's going to encourage us this morning. There is a war that has uh, been waged. We're all engaged in it, but it is a war that has already been won by Jesus. And yet at the same time, there are still battles for us to fight. And Paul wants to encourage us that we have everything we need to stand firm in the battles that we find ourselves engaged in because the war is already won. And so he's going to encourage us to put on the full armor of God. Look at what he says. I'm going to read the passage here, beginning in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read to the end of the, of the chapter and we'll go back and talk through it. This is what he says. He says, finally, be strong. Um, finally, be strong, and in, uh, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for the very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers. In love, with faith, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I ask that you'd help us this morning. This is a passage that has great potential to be misunderstood. Father, I pray that um, the outcome this morning would not be fear, but Father, it would be awe and reverence toward you. Father, would you open our eyes this morning? Would you remind us that this battle that we fight, the battles that we're engaged in, they're not battles of flesh and blood. Father, largely unseen to us, yet they um, are part of our experience. And so I pray this morning that you would help us, that we would, we would leave here encouraged you know, about the state of the war having been won. Father, that we'd leave here armed for the battles that we fight. Father, we'd would leave here feeling more desperate and dependent upon you and upon each other for this life that you've called us to live. We ask this the only way we can, and we, we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So in verse 10, he says, uh, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So, so, to be strengthened, it's an ongoing thing. It's something that, that is available to us at the moment of salvation, and he wants us to stand firm in it, growing in strength to the very end. The battle is real. And the enemy fears, and Paul wants us to realize something. We have everything we need for the battle. The battle's real. We're engaged in it. And yet we have everything we need for the battle. In verse 11, we ta he talks about the enemy's schemes. Put on the whole armor of God, he says. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil... For we do not wrestle, he says, against flesh and blood. But then he, he gives us the things that we do wrestle against. The things we can't see. The rulers 
and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of these are part of the power that the enemy, the devil, wields against us in the spiritual warfare. This, this devil, the, the devil he speaks about there in verse 11, it's from the word diablos. He makes a, one of the sauces that you can get at Torchies. In the Old Testament, he's Satan. He is specifically mentioned in 21 of the 26 New Testament writings. Every New Testament writer addresses him. Over 65 passages warning the reader about the enemy. We find from Scripture that he has been sinning from the beginning, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. In fact, John goes on and says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. His, his pride, we know, led to his fall, 1 Timothy 3, 6. And speaking about elders, they must not be recent converts. They may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Conceit, a pride. We know that he was a murderer from the beginning and a liar and the father of all lies. Jesus says in John 8, you are, uh, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. He's called the serpent, the accuser, the adversary, a roaring lion seeking to devour, a dragon, the evil one, a tempter. In Ezekiel, he's portrayed as the anointed cherub cast from heaven because he was proud of his beauty. Spoken of as the fallen star of heaven cast from the mountain of God as something defiled and destroyed to be gazed at in horror. He's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the leader of the demonic realm. He's called Satan, Diablos, Beelzebul. The early church fathers, those that wrote just after the apostles, they understood him to be actively involved in trying to lead the church into sin and dissension. He's called the dark one. The author of heresy sought to recruit humanity to his army through lies. Jesus announced, though, in Luke chapter 10, that he saw him fall like lightning from heaven. He's an enemy that's already defeated. Romans 16 tells us, Paul says, he's soon to be crushed, that the resurrection of Jesus defeated his death. And his works have been destroyed. And at the return of Jesus, we learn. He'll be seized and bound for a thousand years. He'll be thrown into a pit that will be shut and sealed. 
When the thousand years are over, he'll be released from his prison. He will try yet again to deceive the nations of the earth, rebuild his army, march in war against Jesus. Revelation 20 tells us his army will be consumed with a fire from heaven, and Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Paul speaks of the war. A war between light and darkness, good and evil, heaven and hell, Christ and Satan. And whether you realize it or not, you're a part of the war. You can't afford, we can't afford to be ignorant to it. And we certainly can't afford to be neutral. We learn from this, the description that that Paul gives, we have an enemy that is strategic. That's what it means about the the schemes. He's spiritual. Wars waged in the spiritual places. Martin Luther, you know the hymn, his power and craft are great, but armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. He's strong. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. In our flesh, in our flesh, we're no match for the adversary. Even our, our strength, even the, all the strength of our flesh is, is puny and it's, and it's weak. Our good intentions are, are overwhelmed by his wickedness. He hates you. He is an enemy who hates you. He does not know mercy or pity. He deals in shame and guilt and shadows, and he wants to destroy your life, and he longs for your death. This is who he is. Kent Hughes in his commentary says, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on pain and anguish and filth. Paul speaks of his schemes, the schemes of the devil. Methodia is the word. It speaks of his methods. It's used, the way it's used, it means craftiness or deceit or wicked strategy, systematic deception, a snare, a trap, an an ambush to, to lie in wait. It is a plot for your destruction. That's what he deals in. And as we think about the enemy and we think about his schemes, there's two, two errors I think we need to be careful of. One's overestimating the power of the devil and his demons. The other's underestimating the power of the devil and his demons. There is a devil, there are demons, and they are active. We're guilty probably most off of underestimating since the age of the Enlightenment, especially in the West. We want to explain everything with science or psychology or the moral fabric of society. Listen, we don't want to deny any of those things. There's the effects of psychology and biology and family systems, and there's a brokenness in the world, and we experience that and encounter it in, in many ways. 
But it doesn't explain everything. You've seen the movie Silence of the Lambs? It's Clarice, you know, Jodie Foster's character. She's going to visit Hannibal Lecter. She's a, a psychologist. So she says, just outside, you know, just before they go in, well, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that, that he could become so cruel? Well, he hurt her. She walks in, Hannibal Lecter says, you know, Anthony Hopkins, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You have everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing's ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? A writer, a professor from Columbia University, wrote a book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And he's exploring this, you know, our understanding of, of evil and how we've come as a culture to, to subdue it, to defy it. He's speaking, he talks about this movie. Talks about the line, can you stand to say I'm evil? And he says, modern people, the modern West cannot answer the monster's question. As the 20th century's gone on, what we said 100 or 150 years ago, that all evil has natural causes, scientific causes, psychological, social causes, all that's wearing thin. That's underestimating. overestimate, well, plenty of people have done that. Superstition is contagious. You know, it's the person that, that doesn't get the parking space right up front. Someone grabs it in front of them and says, well, the demons are there until they get the parking space they wanted and then the angels were there. C.S. Lewis, beginning of Screwtape Letters, he gives us this caution. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the, about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors. And hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Where do you fall on the errors this morning? Are you an underestimator? Are you an overestimator? Well, there are two battlefronts. Move quickly through this. I think uh, the enemy specializes in two areas, although there are certainly more. One is the attack on the church. The other is an attack on the believer. And those are intertwined with each other. But lots of people have written about it. And think of it this way, the, the ancient serpent. He, he doesn't create evil inside of you. What he does is he takes your flaws. 
and he fans them to flame, finds the cracks in your life. He exploits them. He knows your history. He knows your tendency. One has illustrated it this way, that when you take a piano, you open up the top of the piano, you sing into that where all the strings are, are tied. That whatever string your voice is attuned to, when you sing into that piano, the string vibrates. It vibrates to your voice. The devil plays what's already in you aggravates what's already in you through lies and deceit and anger. In fact, Paul's already told us in Ephesians 4, 26, he said, don't let the sun go down on your anger and, don't, and give no opportunity to the devil. The attack on the church comes in division and quarrel and ineffectiveness and miscommunication that, we, that, we're, that we're put off by one another and become angry or or divided. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he's, he's making the point, listen, we've got to live as people who, who forgive and forgive often. Forgiveness is essential in the church. He says, so that we don't become outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. For his schemes or devices, maybe your says. Well, that's how he comes at the church, how he comes at believers. Two primary ways, although there are more. But one's temptation, the other's accusation. In fact, those two things are bound up in his very name. The tempter, the accuser. Temptation. When, when Satan tries to hide God's holiness from you, hiding how much God hates sin, Accusation comes as, as Satan's trying to hide God's love from you. It seeks to accuse you. I'll take my cue. I'll give you a few devices of temptation, devices of accusation. We'll move on and we'll talk about the armor that we put on. I take it from Tim Keller who actually took it from Thomas Brooks, an old 17th century Puritan. The first device of temptation, Brooks says, is that he shows you the bait and hides the hook, which means he gets you to look at the short-term pleasure of what this would do and hide from yourself the long-term misery of all that happens. Secondly, by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue, well, I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy, I'm, I'm just concerned. I'm not really an alcoholic. I'm just sociable. Thirdly, by showing you the sins of Christian leaders, so you say to yourself, well, he did it too. Nobody's really that pure. Fourthly, by overstressing the mercy of God so that you say to yourself, it's okay to do it. God will forgive me. That's his job. Fifth, by making you bitter over suffering. So then you say to yourself, I've suffered. I, I deserve this, whatever this is. Sixth, by showing Christians how many bad people seem to have great lives. And so what happens in the self-talk of our head is 
well, I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. Seventh, by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. I'm I'm very good over here. I do all this, and then so it's okay if I if I do that. An illustration of this (laughs) Keller gives is the mafia hitman. I'm good to my mother. It's okay that I kill people. Because I'm really, really good to my mother. That's temptation. Accusation comes this way, one by causing us to look more at our sin than our Savior. Second, by causing Christians to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. Third, by making Christians think troubles they're going through must be punishment. This wouldn't have happened unless God was mad at me. Fourth, in in the accusation, accusing of Christians, making Christians uh, think that they couldn't possibly have the inner struggles and feelings that they have. So they say, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be having these thoughts. I wouldn't be having these desires. I wouldn't think these things. Thomas Brooks goes on. He just asks a question. No, 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 the devices that are uh, so, so easily used on you. And then to arm yourself with the full armor of God. Listen, the battles that we fight are battles waged in a war that is already won. That's why Paul, stand firm in the strength of his Lord, be, in the strength of the Lord, be strengthened by his might. And even though he is a defeated enemy that we battle, he is still dangerous. You know about rattlesnake heads? Growing up in West Texas, one of the things you learn is rattlesnakes are bad, okay? They have a little rattle on the end of their tail, and, uh, and if you hear the rattle, you want to stop where you are and make sure you're not in too close a proximity to one. You also learn that they don't always let you know when they're there. Sometimes they're curled up in, in some brush or or hiding under a shade, and so you've always got to be careful where you stick your hand or you put your foot. The third thing you've got to know is that um, uh, you, you, rattlesnakes should um, need to die. <laughs> a shotgun will do, so will a shovel. But here's the fourth thing. A dead rattlesnake's still deadly. A decapitated rattlesnake head can still bite. Rattlesnake heads, it's pulled this up, same for most venomous snakes, still have the capability of biting and injecting venom because some reflexive motion still remains even after they've been separated from the body. 19 
uh, or 2018, a couple years ago, Corpus Christi guy working in his yard. You can find it all over the place. CNN reports it. Everybody reports it. Reader's Digest, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet. Guy's working in his yard, takes his shovel, decapitates a rattlesnake, goes to pick up the head to discard it. He's bitten by it, spends the next year fighting for his life. CBS did a follow-up on him a year later. His kidneys were completely failed. They didn't know if they'd ever come back. But not only his kidneys, he ended up losing two fingers despite skin grafts in a hyperbaric chamber. The damage of the poison spread to his colon, his stomach, his nervous system. Here's what his wife says. I'll see a crumpled up bunch of leaves that got stuck under a plant, and it gives me a heart attack. I think it's a snake. All the enemies received a crushing blow, but he's still dangerous. And the thing is, he doesn't come to us like he comes to us in the movies. Subtly, deceptively, filled with lives, lies. Brooks goes on, he says, Satan does not leave feign marks on your flesh. He leaves lies in your heart because he is a liar. It's a good time. What, what lies do you believe? It's a good time to audit that. Now he says in verse 13 to put on the whole armor of God. He's, second time he said it. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. That the whole armor of God, he speaks of all the tools and all the weapons and all the armament. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. In this armor of God, there are defensive coverings, if you will. And there is one offensive weapon. Stand firm, he says. Put on yourself the, 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 the belt of truth. For the, for the warrior in that day, and Paul was probably looking at a Roman guard there. He's probably just describing the armor that he's wearing, this guy that he's chained to in Rome while he's writing this. And the belt, this, this belt, it holds everything together. You're, you know, if you have an old translation, gird up your loins, pull your belt uh, uh, tightly around you so that it cinches everything up. You're ready to move. You're ready to react. You're ready to defend. And he says, this belt is truth. It is the revealed Word of God. The battle is, is full of deceptions and lies, temptations and accusations, and the truth. It, it's, what, it's what holds us together so that we can stand firm. We have to be people who know the truth, which means we've got to be people who are spending time in God's Word that the Holy Spirit takes this word of God as we spend time in it and it, and it shores us, it, it helps us to stand firm, it, it holds everything together. It's amazing. I, I talk to people all the time. Listen, you may be reading something that day and you think, I, you know, it's, 
six in the morning, seven in the morning, whenever it is, and I don't know how, or, or 10 at night, I don't, I'm not suggesting you can only read it at six or seven in the morning, whenever you read it. And you may be sitting there thinking, man, I don't know what this means, I don't know how relevant this is to me, I have, you know, I, oh, this is frustrating. And three days later, something happens, and you're your mind recalls that thing you read that you didn't understand then, but all of a sudden you realize, oh yeah, this has meaning right here in this moment. This is what God's done. This is what He does by His Spirit as we take in His Word. Well, it's the belt of truth. There's the breastplate of righteousness. The, the, the breastplate, it protects all the vital organs. It is what keeps you alive. And the righteousness is kind of twofold here probably Paul thinks of. It's, it's being declared right with God. C- covered with who Jesus is so that we can stand before God. And, and, it, and it's also then out of our life, out of, a, out of a right standing with God, it becomes those right actions that flow out of our right standing before God. It speaks of our salvation and our ongoing transformation, becoming who we already are in Christ. It reminds us, this breastplate that protects us, our sins are not fatal, but we want to run to forgiveness, run to the confession of our sin. That's why he tells us, put on the shoes, the shoes on our feet, the the peace, the gospel of peace, reminding us our footing against Satan is the peace of God. Jesus has secured our peace. We we stand sure-footed because of the cross before the throne of God, clothed in everything that Jesus is, his perfection, his righteousness, his beauty. And that we take up the shield of faith. Trusting God. Faith enables us to view our life, our circumstances, through God's perspective. Faith, according to Hebrews 11, it focuses our horizon beyond those things that are, that are temporary and it sets our eyes on eternity. Swindoll talks about the shield of faith. He says it this way, the barrage of flaming arrows of the evil one we experience in the Christian life, it can take many forms. Let me name a few. Temptation, doubt, anger, frustration, pride, despair, fear, guilt, shame, confusion, deception, discouragement, depression, hopelessness, greed, lust, presumption, stubbornness, laziness, suspicion, jealousy, hate, wrath, discord, conflict. The list, he says, goes on and on and on. In short, the kind of fiery attacks at the devil's fingertips are virtually innumerable. The shield of faith, however, provides impenetrable protection from these things. The shield of faith. Believing God for that which you can't see. Being sure of of those things you hope for. Eyes set 
on an eternity with him? I think too many believers, we talk about faith. Faith is something that happens when we come to salvation. Faith, faith brings us into salvation. And then we spend so much of our Christian life trying not to live by faith. Trying to be in control. To, to, trying to eliminate all the need of anything uncertain. Anything to have to, to live by faith about. And yet the Christian life from beginning to end is a faith. You'll never, you'll never graduate in the Christian life out of faith. Well, then there's the helmet of salvation. Most commentators view this as the assurance of our salvation. Always remembering. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's not of ourselves. It's not of ourselves. It's not of ourselves. It's constantly reminding ourselves this is not of ourselves and we can never be unsaved. It's the assurance of salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon, it's the Word of God. More specifically here, the way he writes it, it's the Word of God spoken, memorized, rehearsed, uh, re- re- remembered. Jesus says in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Frank Peretti concludes in his book, no man of lies, no matter how cleverly couched, will ever outstrip or outlast God's truth. Nor will any ever lie out of reach of his grace. The armor, you don't put the armor on in the middle of battle, you put it on. Now you live with it on. You, you, you live life every day, every moment with this armor. Well, I have 90 seconds. Here's how Paul moves towards the conclusion. Look at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. Praying. 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 One writer, when you stepped into the Christian life, you didn't step into a playground. You stepped into a battleground. There's never not a battle that's being waged. About 50 years after Paul wrote this, Ignatius of Antioch in 110 AD, famous preacher, he writes also to the Ephesians. And he reminds them, make every effort to come together more frequently to give thanks and prayer and glory to God. For when you meet together, The powers of Satan are overthrown and his destructiveness is nullified by the unanimity of the faith. Well, he closes with peace and love and grace 
a benediction, but more than a benediction. A fond farewell, but more than a fond farewell. It's the Apostle Paul here being vulnerable, if you heard it. He's in prison. He has great need. And he's not adopting the apostleness that says, well, I'm okay. I'm an apostle. I don't need anybody. He says, no, I desperately need you. Pray for me. Pray for the words that come out of my mouth. Pray that I'd stay encouraged. Pray that those that hear me would be encouraged. He sees the body of Christ as the is the source of strength for him. Paul's not just a consumer of ministry. The Ephesians, they're not just consumers of ministry. They're a part of this deal. That's why the writer of Hebrews encourages us to stir up one another in love and good works. That's why we meet together. You came here this morning for more than a song and more than a sermon, more than a feeling. You came here to be encouraged. You came here to be strengthened. You came here to encourage and to strengthen. Grace and love and peace, this is the commodity, this is the currency amongst us this morning. It describes what it looks like when we meet together. Says, we'll leave here this morning, every one of us. We step out of here and on to the battleground. And a feeling, you know, a song that gave you goosebumps or a, or a message that you thought, wow, that's worthy of my getting up this morning and going to. You need more than that. You need the Word of God residing in your heart, in your life. And you need the people of God around you. As your buoy, as your anchor. Their faith, their shield of faith, locked with your shield of faith. Waging these battles side by side. Every day, all week, all month, all year all our life. The war's already been won. The armor we have is impenetrable. As believers, let's put this on. Let's engage in the war. Let's not be ignorant of it. Let's not be afraid. Let's walk in the victory of Jesus, our Savior. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would help us this morning. We would, we would be strong in the Lord. We would be strengthened by His might. And Father, we would be girded up with Your truth. We would stand in Your peace. We would don the helmet of salvation, the assurance that You that you hold us and nothing, nothing can separate us from you. That our faith in you would be our shield, counting on the breastplate of righteousness for our life.
or the wielding the sword of your truth, your word, spoken, remembered, internalized, and shared. And Father, we'd, we'd be believers who wore this armor and wore it well and wore it all the time. Another praying and praying for one another and experiencing what it, what it means to know your grace and to know your peace and to know your love as we share that with those around us. Father, thank you for this letter to the Ephesians. Thank you for the ministry of Paul. Thank you for the months or the years he spent in jail in Rome so that he could write this letter and it could be preserved. And then 2,000 years later, we can stand here and open it up. We can find ourselves under its authority this morning. And so, Father, I pray it wouldn't return void. It would have its way in us. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.